How many Russians have been killed in the full-scale invasion of Ukraine? If you visited Medusa's website this week, you'll know that we ran the numbers and estimate the total death toll among Russian combatants to be 47,000 men. That's three times more than all the Soviet troops who died over 10 years of fighting in Afghanistan. And it's nine times more than how many Russian soldiers were killed in the first Russian-Chechen war in the mid-1990s. Now, 47,000 doesn't include the Ukrainian nationals fighting for Moscow, like the men in Russia's proxy forces in Donetsk and Luhansk. And it doesn't include soldiers who are missing or captured. 47,000 dead men killed in the war in Ukraine. By itself, the number isn't very interesting. It's not even very different from the other figures that have circulated for months in the Western press, courtesy of intelligence officials in the U.S. and the U.K. But this estimate, the work of a joint investigation by Medusa, Mediazona, and statistician Dmitry Kabak, does stand out for its transparent methodology and because we used a novel way to measure Russia's dead men. Inheritance claims filed in Russia's National Probate Registry. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa in English. On this week's show, I spoke to one of the authors of a new joint investigation estimating how many Russian combatants have been killed so far in Ukraine. The last time Russia's own defense ministry commented on this issue was way back in September 2022, when officials claimed that the number was just under 6,000. Regarding verified data, the most reliable public information available about killed Russian troops comes from independent monitors collaborating with journalists at Mediazona and the BBC. That team tracks combat deaths mentioned in local news outlets and on social media. They look for obituaries, in other words. When this new joint investigation came out, the Mediazona BBC project had counted nearly 27,000 Russians killed in Ukraine. Of course, not everybody who dies in the war gets commemorated back home a distinction that is least common with the thousands of inmates, many of whom are violent offenders, who have been recruited directly out of prison to serve in mercenary groups and with the Russian army. If you haven't yet read the joint investigation, here's the skinny. Journalists at Medusa and Mediazona obtained access to a restricted but non-classified database of inheritance claims and compared trends in these data to those evident in both publicly available demographics and the reporting on obituaries that I just described. Probate records include more than 11 million individual cases dating back to 2014, and each inheritance claim shows the deceased person's full name, the dates of birth and death, the date when the probate case was opened, and other information. The records here are not comprehensive, but the large sample size makes the data representative, which is what matters for this analysis. The cases included in this database were opened between 2014 and May 2023. Comparing Rostat data and inheritance cases to soldiers' reported obituaries shows that the share of men dying in Ukraine whose deaths become public knowledge varies widely across different age groups and other demographic factors. The demographic differences here mean that researchers have to adopt several assumptions about how much of a particular group is captured by the data available. And there's room for some disagreement here. For example, economist Tatyana Mikhailova has commented on the Medusa Media Zona joint investigation and said that the study's death toll estimate is conservative and possibly underestimated because less socialized combatants, like mercenaries, are so absent from public obituaries. Mikhailova has also compared Mediazona's obituary reporting to Rostat's data on excess mortality and to the loss of breadwinner pensions awarded by the Defense Ministry, and she's concluded that Rostat is reporting only half, or even less than half, 
of all men dying during the war. And this underreporting is happening at different levels in different regions across Russia. All this is to say that there are continuing statistical efforts to guess the real number of Russians killed in Ukraine, oftentimes leaning on the same tricks and methodologies utilized during the coronavirus pandemic when the Russian authorities were similarly reluctant to reveal the full costs of a national crisis. But that's enough out of me. Let's hear from one of the authors behind this new study. Let me, let me just start with a general question. What's your reaction to the reactions? Like, I know that you've been seeing some responses on Reddit. People have been responding on Twitter. Do you feel like people understood this investigation? Or do you feel like there's some big things that they're not getting? The first thought that came into my mind that we did our job pretty well with calculations, but I think maybe we didn't uh, in explaining it because even guys who are into data analytics, they sometimes pinpointed the weak parts of a study in the wrong places. On the other hand, some people like Tatiana Mikhailova, who actually did one of the variations of this analysis, she did get it quite right and she pinpointed the weakest points in the study right away. I think that we could have explained it a bit better, but I think that it's really hard to explain it in a simpler terms, since the method that was used turned out to be quite complicated. We could have invented more simple method, but this is the simplest one that is correct. What are the weakest points you feel in this analysis? I think the weakest point is that we, as in every analysis, we rely on uh, some basic assumptions. And one of the strong basic assumptions in our analysis is that different groups of military personnel that could be found and end up in the database of Mediazona, BBC and volunteers, they have the same probability of ending up there. So, for example, like VDV guys and mobilized personnel, they end up in social media, on cemeteries, and actually in our hands, they end up with the same probability or more or less the same probability. And this assumption allows us to get a share of these groups and then account for different probabilities of ending up in registry of these groups. I feel like this is pretty reasonable assumption, but I can't prove it without a big additional experimental work. In the article, you talk about the fact that some types of combatants, like registered soldiers and mercenaries, and then even like prison recruit mercenaries, that their inheritance claims are reported at different rates and that there are demographic kind of differences within the mass of Russian combatants. Are you accounting for those demographic differences in the inheritance cases, but not in the publicly posted obituaries because you don't have that information? Or are you doing it for both? Like, where are the demographics taken into account and where are you not able to take them into account? There's a two probabilities we could talk about. The one probability is that if a person dies, his relatives might file a probation claim or probation file. And this probability is strictly dependent on his material status, whether he has real estate or where, whether he has a car or any property, any property. And different people, different groups of people have different amount of 
properties. We actually compared every major group inside this whole military personnel. We compared every major group to each other and found that prisoners are the only group that really stands out, that really is different in this regard. So you can always see, and this is a bit philosophical part, you can always claim that there's tons and thousands of bodies lying somewhere in the fields and nobody cares for them and nobody ever written any obituaries for them, nobody mentioned them. It's almost like a teapot of uh, Russell. Somewhere in the space, there's a teapot that's orbiting around the sun, but nobody can find it, nobody can see it. That's exactly the same point. I can't deny that this is the real possibility, but, well, I can't control for it. Unlike Ukraine, Russia has no public registry for missing soldiers. Many killed Russian combatants whose bodies were never recovered and or transferred back home have not appeared until recently in public mortality statistics. There are no death certificates for these men. They do not register in Rostat data, and they aren't designated in inheritance claims. Ukrainian officials have repeatedly said that they have the unclaimed bodies of tens of thousands of Russian soldiers, though this information has not been corroborated. There are, of course, data circulating about Russian soldiers missing in action, but it is far from exhaustive. Seized internal Russian military records published by Ukraine's main intelligence directorate present information that could potentially identify casualty trends for Russia's armed forces. The most extensive data set of this type was captured from Russia's first guards tank army and published in May 2022. Correct me if I'm wrong, but part of the analysis is that you do not see other evidence that would suggest thousands of bodies lying in the field. You mentioned the Ukrainian military's claims that it has tens of thousands of bodies on ice that are unclaimed, essentially. You conclude, if I'm not mistaken, that it's unlikely that there are these whole masses of frozen bodies waiting to be picked up. Is that correct? Or That's absolutely correct. More or less, we have at least three lines of evidence that lead us to believe that there's no huge amount of unclaimed bodies. The first is the case of First Tank Army, if I may elaborate on it. First Tank Army was fighting to the north of Kiev and they sustained a he- very heavy losses and they even lost some of the papers on their losses while they retreated. And we have screenshots, the copies of these documents, which defines all the lost in action and missing in action personnel that they had by the 15th of March. And we compared this list to our probation registry. And we found that almost exactly one half of those that was killed in action turned out to be found in the probation registry, which is completely in line with all other personnel in all other places that we know about. Depends on status, it depends on the age, but overall the figure half of the killed in action is right. And we also compared it to the not killed in action, but missing in action. And we found that the quarter of those people also could be found in the registry. That leads to a conclusion that at least a half of those who are missing would be actually found. It does happen slowly. They have some stronger delay between the death and being found in the registry, but it could be found. What we don't know exactly is the ratio between lost in action and missing in action. That's a hard thing to pinpoint. 
Because one example of this first talk on me, it's a very extreme example. And uh, also there's a second line of evidence is filing of court cases for assuring that the missing person actually died. There's a special procedure with which you can go to the court and the, this person would be officially, well, would be say officially died for the lack of a better word. And we've seen that in the statistic of these court cases, there's no change at all. They go in exactly like the year ago or, or two years ago. They're exactly the same. So I don't believe that there's a huge number of lost in action bodies lying somewhere in the fields. One of the conclusions that seems to emerge from this research is that we have a total death count of 47,000, you know, a total estimate. And if we run with a ratio for every one killed, three are, are injured, then they, I suppose you can further divide it by, you know, light injuries and serious injuries. And obviously the total that uh, Medusa and Mediazota run with is at least 125,000 for killed and seriously injured. But if we just do a one to three ratio, which again is like one of the kind of standard multipliers that's out there, we come away with a figure close to 150,000 for total sort of just soldiers killed or injured. And that's not so far from some of the numbers we've heard from Western analysts and even from Ukraine. Is that is that a fair way to put it, that this research confirms some of those analyses or does it challenge them? Do you think the number is actually lower than what we're hearing? And We tried not to even not to even take them into account, not to even think about what number should we get at the end, since it would definitely influence our methodology, even subconsciously influence. Sure. That's now you now you finish. Now you have the number. Now when you look at like what's reported by the Ukrainian military or by whatever CIA sources are feeding their stories, the New York Times and so on, and you say, okay, well, we've mathematically, we've largely confirmed what those reports have said. Or when you look at those reports, do you think, well, actually, our analysis shows that it's considerably lower? The problem with this analysis and estimates, uh, not with our estimate, but with uh, CIA's estimates, is uh, that they contain in the one bucket killed and wounded and lightly wounded and sometimes in prisoners. And it's very hard. We had to, to take it apart and compare apples and oranges. The figure that I'm sure of is the number of killed personnel. That's one. And for the second, I'm sure that there's no huge amounts of lost in action. I know that the majority of those lost in action are already in our figure of killed. And we do this on purpose. We understrike that we talking about the precise figures when we talk about killed in action. And we try to speculate on the number of injured personnel since there's a completely different methodology. We don't want to mix up precise uh, calculations with our hand-waving estimations. So uh, I could talk only about killed personnel. And I must say that the figure that goes in, in lines with our estimates was present in the leaked files of Teixeira. When I compared it, they looked almost identical. Which leaked files are these? The file that was leaked on Discord. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I wanted to ask you if you could explain your confidence levels in your estimates here. 
I mean, confidence levels in like mathematical terms. I'm sure you just have a number you could throw at me, but if you could also explain that a little bit for people who don't understand what confidence intervals are or standard, you know, variations or whatever, like how do you measure your confidence in, in your results? That's a really good question. I hope to explain it in a more simple terms. For example, you drop in a coin and having tails and heads. We doing almost the same in a way with our calculation. For example, you drop in a coin a hundred times and you could be pretty sure that close to 50 drops, you can get heads or tails. You wouldn't be expecting to have like 99 heads in a 100 drops. And these confidence intervals, they stand for the number of drops. The more times you drop your your coin, the more confident you in this precise ratio between heads and tails. We do almost the same. We calculate our coefficients that allows us to translate number of probate cases to the number of death personnel. We need some number to say that, for example, one case of probation would lead to point half deaths. And in order to calculate it, we need some number, this ratio between heads and tails. And confidence intervals, they mirror our confidence in how many times we did drop our coin. As a result, we got this interval between 40,000 dead personnel and 55,000 dead personnel. We know that if our methodology is right, then it follows that with a 95% certainty, we know that our number is inside these brackets. The chance of it being outside these brackets is less than 5%. I don't know whether it makes sense, but that's how it works. I had another question, not related to confidence levels, but related to geographic trends. And I wonder, I don't know if this is something that was either in your data or if you had a chance to look at it, but did you notice geographic trends in the probate cases, the inheritance cases that you were tracking? Like, because obviously one of the questions that surrounds the issue of who is dying in Russia is, you know, where are they from in Russia? And like, oh, are they all from Buratia? Are they all, are they all from Chechnya? Or like, are they all from Moscow? Like, were you able to track where the inheritance cases were being registered or where the people were living who were filing those cases? Or is that outside the scope of this? Yeah, it was outside the scope of this particular publication, but we're definitely looking into it for the following work. And I, I must say it's a big amount of work to compare them. Buretia does stand out from other regions, but I can say that while we need to compare these numbers with the economical status of regions, with the regional GDPs, with the salary levels, because in almost every other way, these regions are connected to each other. They have a very poor economy and that does influence the number of drafted and number of mobilized personnel from this region. Might also influence the number of inheritance cases too, I guess, right? You've already noticed in the report, you noticed that younger people are less likely to have inheritance cases. They have less property. And so it's possible, I suppose, that that would affect measuring the regional differences. If there are some regions that are so poor, people typically don't leave anything behind. Maybe you get fewer inheritance cases, I guess, possible at least. Yeah, you know. exactly. And that's why we can't do it straight away. We can't just go and take our general coefficients and general methodology and apply it to regional right, supply. Right. We need to do pretty big work in order to compare regions to each other.
Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.